Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Hi, welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Today, we're talking with Ali Watson, who is actually our guest on our very first episode uh, about our trip through hiking the PCT. Uh, this past winter, she through hiked the Arizona Trail. Is that is that right, Allie? Is it the the Arizona Trail? Yeah, Arizona Trail, and then often referred to as the AZT, and it's recognized as a scenic trail. Yeah. And I was super interested in uh, in what this trail was about because there's not a lot of kind of off season uh, through hiking in North America. So, Allie, welcome back. You're you're in beautiful Banff. I'm getting a little bit sunburned here in uh, in Calgary. We finally have some sun. So the Arizona Trail, what possessed you to do this route? For this one, actually, I was exactly what you said, looking for something in the off season because most trails are done um, throughout the summer, give or take some spring and fall months. And then I was working uh, with the National Park on the trail crew doing trail maintenance and building um, and really didn't want to let that go. I always thought that would be the best training before a trail. It'd be amazing to jump on a trail after a season of trail work. And originally I was actually looking at the TA in New Zealand, which I unfortunately can't pronounce the name, the (laughs) Tearora, but uh, just with COVID. And then I ended up having knee surgery the season before and wasn't looking like a good option to travel um, for that length of time. So I decided to get on the Arizona trail with my partner. And we had a bunch of friends actually hike it. It was still a really popular season in the spring because uh, you can hike it in the spring or the fall. And that was kind of the impetus to just say yes and plan it for October. How long is the AZT? I keep wanting to say the AT, but the AT is the Appalachian Trail. So I can't, I can't call it that. <laughs> yeah, it's roughly 800 miles. Um, it does change quite often because it's seeing a lot of growth. There's a lot of volunteer work that goes on. They're rerouting routes. And I think almost every year the mileage changes. So we did, I think, closer to 780. uh, But generally it's within that 800 range. And then, you know, the PCT is famous for the camaraderie. Same with the AT. What's the Arizona Trail like in terms of the camaraderie? Is it the same thing we are constantly passing and meeting up with people along the trail? And are there trail angels and stuff like that? Or is it out there that there's not as not as much of the mystique of the PCT yeah um it's definitely more isolated uh we found that we mostly only saw other hikers uh in and out of town within that first 20 miles in and out of town or actually in town and otherwise we didn't really see people or camp with many other people um till the end where we kind of met up with a big group and decided to do the last 100 miles together yeah it was really interesting because it felt pretty isolating and I know people that were hiking solo really had second thoughts about whether or not to continue just because it was really draining on them, lacking that social factor. I started with my partner, so we had each other. And then we actually met on our second day, um, another hiker who we hiked the entire trail with, and we all just kind of ended up with the same pace and the same ideology towards hiking. So it worked out. But I think in the spring, it's a busier season. People are more drawn to the spring because the access to water is generally more favorable. So with the spring, people tend to start off and get kind of more of the trail family type of situation, but it didn't feel that way in the fall. You know, I did the GR10 and it was in, 
2002. So like nobody was traveling. And I was like, I was, I was trekking on my own and it was like that. It was, it was really, really tough, like surprisingly difficult. I traveled, you know, extensively on my own before. Uh, but there's some old trekking where like, you know, you'd, you'd come into villages and the one jeet, like you'd be the only guest and there was kind of all the tourism facilities were closed. So I can imagine it would be tough. So, so on the Arizona trail, is it really like, are you out there and there's like, you're not going through towns? Is it like the PCT where you're kind of out in nature for, you know, three, four or five days and you come back and, and resupply in a town or are you kind of going through, you know, settlements off and on? Yeah, I think uh, generally our resupplies were between three and five days. You can definitely do longer because some, sometimes the access into town would be like a longer hitchhike or trying to organize a ride. Um, there's a really cool network of trail angels on the AZT that uh, differs from my experience on the PCT where, you know, people would kind of just show up and just be there. On the AZT, there's actually a list on the website um, of people willing to help and offering trail angel services throughout each section. And we actually were able to, we met someone at a water cache and then we asked them um, to shuttle some water further up for us. And uh, we did that a few times. And I know some people had set up private water caches along the way. So when you have things like that, um, people will drop food caches off for you in bear bins or at road crossings or meet you. Um, a lot of people went that route. We kind of just winged it I like to just kind of see where things go because plans change so often but yeah and some of the towns are really small with a lack of access to quality goods you know a lot of times you'd be resupplying at the gas station and the dollar general and just (laughs) going for it with the junk food but we were able to stop like in Tucson and Flagstaff and stuff to get some beefier resupplies but um I didn't do any shipping of any food either because just the hours and the access to the post offices didn't seem that reliable either and so you talked about water being an issue how much of an issue was it like were there any times where it's like oh no what are we going to do for water or did you always manage to to make it work we really lucked out because there we didn't know this till we started but there was apparently um a quite monumental monsoon season that summer in arizona so a lot of the sources that usually run dry in the fall were actually flowing the northern section until we got, I remember the water being really plentiful um, outside of Pine, Arizona, uh, which is about, I think, 300 miles plus uh, from this, the northern terminus. So we went southbound. But yeah, a lot of times it was like uh, cow troughs and tanks and depleted ponds. And it really kind of reset my standard for access to water and uh, what's drinkable and what's not. Most of it, I didn't find tasted too bad, but some of it, You'd read the comments in the app uh, for sure and kind of decide which ones you wanted to bypass, where on other trails often it's like a water source is a water source and it's going to be reliable as long as it there's comments that says it's still active. But this one was kind of like pick and choose the best option and plan your carries and your campsites around that. Over the winter, I got I go to these YouTube holes where I watch people cycling and, you know, hiking around the world. And I saw some people in Arizona and like, yeah, the water sources they were um, drinking out of looked gross. And it was like, yeah, like a, a stream that had run earlier was now just like the odd kind of murky pond. And I thought, gee whiz. I would never drink out of that. But then it's like, yeah, if that's the only thing, I guess that's all you can do. So did anyone get sick from drinking the water or did it all kind of work out in the end? No one that I was with, but we were pretty diligent. But I did meet a guy, this was really funny to me because he had hiked the trail before and he told me he didn't have like a 
proper water filter. He only had bleach drops and he was filtering his water through a bandana and then adding bleach. But um, I mean, the water I saw, there's no way I'd be doing that. And so I'm a really diligent water filter because it's just the easiest way to avoid an incident um, that can take you off trail for weeks. So uh, even in the Rockies, I generally filter the majority of my water. It's just like an extra 30 seconds to two minutes that can prevent a week or two of sickness. So yeah, there's definitely sometimes you, I carried a scoop with me, um, you know, after a rainfall, sometimes water would collect in rocks and we'd be like scooping out of there. I've never heard of a scoop. So what, what what's a scoop? So what I used is um, I took the bottom of a, a flat, like soft flax, like a, a liter soft flax flask. And then I cut it um, probably, it was probably like four or five inches tall. And then that I could just fold up flat and shove in the pocket of my backpack. And then I can kind of squeeze it and scoop water, especially um, some of the sources are the wildlife tanks. Uh, you don't really want to disturb the algae and the floaters in there. So if you can scoop gently from an area, then um, it's more beneficial to, to your water. But Someone I met had uh, found like a water bottle that was slightly larger than theirs and they cut the bottom and then they could just pop it on the bottom of their bottle. So it was always with their filtration system. It's hard because I filter my water out of um, a platypus two liter soft flask and it has just a regular standard water bottle cap. So scooping and actually filling that is really difficult. So having a scoop to transfer the water and decant it into that was a lot easier in some of the sources. I didn't realize water was that uh, challenging. Um, before we get into the route, I want to know a little bit about kind of the trail in general. You know, the PCT, you know, a lot of these big trails are really well known. It's very clear. Uh, what's the Arizona trail like? Is it a really clear trail? You know, is there any bushwhacking involved? Anything like that? It kind of bounces back and forth between really clear, easy travel um, and bushwhacking for sure especially with the monsoon season there was a lot of growth uh that the trail saw in certain areas so you know one section that it's kind of infamous for tearing people apart um was the matazals that section had seen a ton of new growth especially with this plant called cat claw that literally is a bushy plant that feels like cat claws grabbing at you like it would almost pull you backwards sometimes um and we just got absolutely destroyed through that section. Uh, and it caused us to move a lot slower. So it was really hard to predict your pace um, through some sections, especially when you're used to through hiking on a trail that's pretty seamless in terms of the actual route. I got turned around once for almost an hour and I it was so overgrown. I literally couldn't find, I couldn't see the trail and I was meters from it, just circling around. Yeah. Um, and then you know, we do use the, um, what was previously called gut hook, but is now far out app. And that, you know, the GPS had just kind of like glitched out that second that I was lost and I was just spinning around and the overgrowth was a big issue this year. Um, same with the superstitions, um, that lead you into superior. That was pretty rough too. And then when it wasn't, it was super exposed. So once you got off the, um, the Colorado plateau, like off out of the Grand Canyon and down past Flagstaff, uh, you drop an elevation and it, the heat starts to show up. And so looking at the route, it looks just incredible to me. You know, I've actually never been to Arizona, but, 
you know, reading books and looking at photos of it has looks like there's so much variety from the Grand Canyon up in the in Tondo National Forest, the superstitions, and then down um oh what was the part in the south I was looking at? Um, there's the Rincons and the Santa Ritas. Yeah, and, and there was uh, Saguaro. I don't even know, know how to say that. Saguaro National Park, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were going to go there as a family. We actually booked two trips to Phoenix to go hiking around, and both of them have been canceled because of COVID. I've researched all that, and it looks super diverse. Is it as diverse as it seems to me, having never been there, that like there's a lot of different places you're going through? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that was something that was really um, interesting to me. You know, I get a lot of kind of fear and anxiety about water and heat, and I'm like, how am I going to make it? But um, we actually traveled through some pretty mountainous areas where um, there's active bear populations. You're traveling through pine trees. The beginning, the first hundred miles is all through um, Ponderosa and Aspen forests. And the Aspens were starting to change color when we got to the Grand Canyon. And I had never been there. So that was a pretty incredible experience. And we got a last minute permit to be able to camp in the Canyon. So we took a short day and camped in the Canyon um, at one of the campgrounds there. And then, that was pretty amazing because we got to kind of hike down, enjoy sunset within the canyon, and then enjoy sunrise as we were hiking out, um, which was pretty amazing. And then, yeah, in so in Saguaro National Park, there's an east and west, and it's known for the saguaro cactuses. But um, the east that we were in, we actually, I think, so that day we tried to make it closer to the beginning of this big climb and we gave up because the daylight was pretty lacking and we were just done with the day. So we ended up doing a 31-mile day with 6,000 feet of elevation gain and 7,000 feet of loss. Almost all of that was in, we went from the desert floor to pine forest, you know, flowing creeks and water and then back down into the cactuses and then slept in the desert floor again. So that was pretty cool to travel through all of that in one day from one side to the other um and i didn't actually think saguaro national park had any rising elevation to be notable because i was just imagined it as you know a cactus forest essentially because the um the western side is what i've seen of the park and that is just kind of like scenic drives through this incredible population of cactus but it was very different on the other side and so I'm super interested in the part going from Tonto National Forest down to the superstitions. I met a guy uh, years ago who just raved about hiking in the superstitions and, uh, you know, Tonto National Forest above. And so it's always been one of those, you know, two places that have been on my bucket list of I should go there and just go hiking. He said it's like some of the best kind of winter hiking in all of the U.S. And sometimes people get really uh, nostalgic about the places they go to. And so I'm always conscious when people give me recommendations, like, is it is it that great? But like, what did, what did you find? So from, you know, g- going through those two areas? Yeah, I mean, the superstitions were definitely one of my favorite areas. And we landed in uh, this town, Superior, which was really cool. And there's this really incredible trail angel there that named MJ who is such an incredible host. There's not a lot of that community on the Arizona Trail. And, you know, staying with her was just kind of the cherry on top of that section. And um, it's really interesting because on the PCT, often you don't get a true connection with the places you're staying at, like those 
kind of infamous places like Hiker Heaven, Casa de Luna, which are now closed. But on the Arizona Trail, I felt like you had a chance to have really authentic experience and connection with the people that are offering help to you and, you know, give donations and and things like that, which was really special because it was so few and far between that when you did have that experience, it was really nice. And then my favorite section, one of my favorite sections on the whole trail was from Superior, so just south of the Superstitions. Um, there's a trailhead called Picket Post Mountain, which is this really incredible mountain there. And to this town, I just want to make sure I'm saying it right. Kearney, I think, was the spot. That section is about 36 miles, and we hiked out at sunset and did two miles, and then the next day did 34. <laughs> and um, so just, you know, the full spectrum. But um, Kearney, is, that whole section was Sunny. It had a lot of elevation gain and loss, and then you head down to the Hewlett River and travel along the river and tons of wildlife. Some of the kind of wildlife I don't love to see, like rattlesnakes in the dark. <laughs> yeah, that section was one of the most stunning areas that we traveled through, and the cactus were just everywhere, and the mountains and sunrise and sunset on all the days were really amazing. And then Kearney is kind of noted as one of the um, most trail friendly town on route. And uh, we definitely had that experience there. A super small place and everyone's just aware of the trail and happy to help out. All these long distance through hiking trails, they bring so much you know, tourism in a real sustainable manner to all these little small towns. I know in, in Europe, especially where they have all these Grand Radones, uh, GR trails or these Eurovelos and it's just such a good way to travel and to, you know, let people explore, to bring some money into these small uh, forgotten towns. You know, I just wish, wish there was more of them because yeah, it, it's for, for that, for that small town, you know, that's a big source of income for, for the people there. So one question people always ask is like, okay, I can't do a full, you know, the full trail. Are there sections uh, of the Arizona trail that are, you know, maybe possible for someone who just wants to take a week or two where, you know, you can kind of get to the trailhead and get out, you know, in an, in an easy, easy manner? Or is it really a, a situation where, you know, you really got to do, you know, maybe you can do some day hikes, but you really got to do the whole thing. There's not easy, you know, uh, ways to break it into smaller sections. I think you definitely can. And it kind of goes through all these wilderness areas, right? So there's like Matazal Wilderness, Four Peaks Wilderness, Superstition Wilderness and all those types of things. So you can definitely do like one of those wilderness sections because they're usually hit end to end with a trailhead or a road crossing, a prominent road crossing. Um, one section that I really liked was the Mogollon Rim, uh, which is just as you enter into Pine and it's a short section. Um, there is actually a trail called the Mogollon Rim Trail that's I think about four or 500 miles. And it's this like incredible natural feature that is at the edge of the plateau and just drops off. And then it's got this like, amazing red stone and slick rock and plentiful water and that section was really cool and you can head um from probably so you pass through pine there which is another really cool town there's an amazing trail angel there called shannon um that's just kind of new to it and hosting hikers but you could even do like from flagstaff down south through the mogollon rim and then you end up in the Matazal Wilderness, which is definitely one of the more rougher sections, but it was really incredible. And all of us felt like really enlightened after that. 
section, especially after, you know, so many people were like doing this whole fear mongering thing, like it's going to eat you alive and, you know, you better slow down your pace and all these things. And we all really enjoyed um, traveling through that section. It was rough, but that was amazing. And then it comes to a road crossing that heads into the town Payson, uh, which is cool. And the uh, trail running store there was really amazing and they helped me. I had, I was having some really bad blister issues that almost took me off trail and the woman there helped me get some new shoes and some new methods to keep my feet surviving. So yeah, the Matazal wilderness um, is really cool and it connects directly to the Mogollon Rim, which were really cool. And then um, the Miller Peak wilderness, which is uh, the last section if you're heading southbound or the first section if you start in the south. Um, that section was really incredible and you end up on top of this massive peak um, which gives you really good insight to um, the kind of landscape of the border which can be really difficult because um, there's a lot of surveillance there and you can visibly see the border wall and construction and things like that but Miller Peak was really cool and then traveling through that forest um, and the wilderness area that it exists within is really amazing. And you can head all the way to uh, Vail. You can do like a hundred mile section. If you're heading northbound from the south, from the southern terminus north, there's a town 50 miles in, which was our last stop, um, which was 50 miles out from the end for us. And uh, it's called Patagonia, Arizona. And it's famous for its diversity of migratory animals. So birds, butterflies things like that um the people travel there for that and it i think it used to have a older population but now it's a lot younger and they're really involved in the cycling community so there's like this cool craft beer and coffee place that's involved in um some cycling races that go on there and there's like an awesome pizza spot and yeah we had a lot of fun there it's a really cool town tiny but really cool this whole uh, uh, trail sounds sounds pretty incredible. Uh, what was it like for sleeping? I, is it a case where you can just throw throw up your tent kind of anywhere, or do you have to reserve campsites before or anything like that? Um, I think the only section that you would need um, a permit is in Saguaro National Park, which is the section that we hiked in and out of um, in a day, uh, which most people take that route because you have to head to the permitting office prior. Um, which isn't always a reality for people on a long distance trail. And then um, Grand Canyon, but they do hold a certain percentage of permits for walk-ups. So we waited in line and then we did like a seven mile day the next day. So we hung out and enjoyed the services of the national park and, and then just headed in in the late afternoon to camp, which was nice uh, way to spend time there. But other than that, you kind of camp as you will but on the uh, GPS app, it's not as updated as other trails where there's um, an actual tent icon and photos and things like that with lots of comments. There's a lot of, especially with the campsites and the water, you kind of have to look at every icon because there'll be a road crossing and there's a water cache there. And then another comment that says 0.7 miles south of here, great campsite. But then there's no actual icon for the campsite. So you do have to do a lot more logistical work within the app. Still nothing compared to planning and reserving an entire trail. But, you know, sometimes that can work in your favor if you're getting tired and you're trying to push it to a campsite and another one just appears. But on the other hand, too, there's a lot of areas that might be 
switch backing up a ridge or quite overgrown and you actually can't set your tent up for miles and miles if you're trying to look for a spot. So it can be hard to plan and everyone does their part in commenting uh, well in advance, you know, like at a water source, they'll be like, oh, good kit, like three miles ahead or things like that. But um, yeah, it, some of them aren't as established. And apparently this year, you know, there was places we were at that said, you know, 10 to 15 spots and we couldn't find any because it was also overgrown and we'd end up, you know, like popping pads and tearing tents and wrecking things and covered in little burrs and pieces of cactus. But, you know, you mentioned some pretty long distances that you had some long days. There's some, you know, some route finding and, you know, it's not super um, popular. It sounds like this, you know, the Arizona Trail isn't a great trail for people's first through hike. But you know, am, am I reading that reading that right, or 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 might it be suitable? I definitely would not recommend this as someone's first through hike. And um, the great thing about that is that there are um, quite a few other shorter distance trails that are considered a longer trail, like the Colorado Trail, Tahoe Rim Trail, um, that seem to be a lot more established. And I think that the infrastructure within the Arizona Trail is definitely growing. Uh, rapidly just logistically it can be really defeating and I think a big part of that is the lack of uh, community if anything I would suggest doing it in the spring over the fall because you just don't see that many people and when you're starting alone that can be really difficult and you know I heard of plenty of people dropping off the trail we had actually a group of friends that were just behind us that got off trail in outside the Grand Canyon so around 100 miles in and it just wasn't for them and yeah another friend who was actually trying to catch up with us we met him on the PCT and he jumped on later but he was just pushing himself and pushing himself trying to catch up and we we're always like a day apart until eventually we caught up with each other but you know he had some pretty fleeting moments of wanting to get off the trail so I think that can be a huge part you just don't have as much support as maybe other more popular trails what was weather like you know, you always hear, oh, Arizona's beautiful in, in the Canadian winter, but I'm looking like, you, you get up pretty high there. Like, there's lots of, it looks, it looks like you go up to eight or 9,000 feet again and again. So, w- was it warm or temperate, or, or was it, could it be chilly at times? The first section while we were on the plateau was freezing at night. I brought booties with me. Um, I normally don't even bring, like, uh, tights or leggings with me, and I brought, like, a sleeping pant. Um, sometimes I'd sleep with little liner mittens on and actually just outside of Flagstaff, we got hit with a massive storm, um, that, you know, our tent collapsed. It was like this huge snowstorm. And, um, a friend that we had met and hiked with for a few days there, his partner was camping and she was kind of like assisting him through the first section and just meeting him in town. And so she came and picked us up and got us out of there. Cause we, none of us wanted to hike through that. We were just done with the day and the winds were so strong you had to use physical force to because we crossed through this ranch area and you had to like physically force your legs to move forward and it was just um kind of a mess <laughs> there and our first first morning after waking up breaking down breaking down camp in the rain pouring rain you know you're often traveling quarter miles to half a mile or more off trail to get a decent water source so that's another thing you have to navigate with the water is you know there might be a water source right on trail but there might be a more reliable 
and cleaner source off trail. So then you're adding miles. Um, but yeah, the weather was difficult at times. And then it, we also had like hundred degree heat. So, which I really don't like. Yeah. It was cold for the first, um, probably two to 300 miles. The nights were really cold. And then once we dropped down, we were able to sleep lower down. And, um, that was definitely a relief from the cold. You mentioned the spring is more popular. Is the weather, you know, obviously the water is better, but is the weather a bit better in spring as well? Or is does it still have the same issues of when you're up high, it's, you know, cold and can snow. And when you're down low, it's bacon. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty similar. One advantage to that is there's more daylight in the spring. I can't remember what time sunrise would be at, but not super early. And then we'd lose our light at about six. So we weren't even hiking um, that long through the day spend a few hours night hiking into the evening but in the spring you avoid that so if it is a nice weather you can push on further with a little more ease but you know finding these water sources and wildlife tanks and things in the dark is always really discouraging and when you have all that daylight in a summer hike you can sit down and have dinner at seven and take an hour break and then hike on for three more hours after that that just wasn't the case with us so a lot of times we're eating in the tent and kind of like shutting it down in the dark, which can also be a little discouraging. So I think the advantage in the spring is that you have more daylight too, and then um, more reliable water generally with the spring melt. And, but I do think it's pretty cold in the morning still. Uh, You mentioned how, you know, it gets dark early. We had Tom from the World Walk on the podcast a couple of months ago, and uh, he's just finished up a seven-year walk, and he's walking across the U.S. in winter. And he was, you know, it was really, really tough. And he said, well, you know, yeah, I I wake up, and it's light at 8, and I'm, you know, it's dark at 4. And so I kind of spend a ton of time, what is that, like 16 hours a day in my tent. I said, that would be – and he's on his own. It's just him and his dog. And I thought – I said to him, that sounds really, really tough. You know, as you're describing it, that sounds really tough because you're sitting in the middle of nowhere. You're, you know, it's not super hospitable and you just got to kind of amuse yourself for kind of 12 or 13 hours a day, which again, it's one of those things you think, oh, it'd be fine. But, you know, staying in a small tent to do nothing, you can only listen to so many podcasts and so many books on tape where you're like, I'm bored. I'm bored of this. Like, actually, I always bring a Kindle because I find I can read longer than I can listen to stuff. But that's one of my luxuries. Last question. How much did you spend? I'm all, I, you know, everyone looks at, oh, you know, taking a month or, or, you know, taking five or six weeks off, you know, they think it's tens of thousands of dollars, but I always like, you know, how much did it actually cost to do something like this? I mean, I think um, a good reference point for a lot of people is about a thousand dollars a month. So I feel like I probably spent like maybe under three Canadian on the actual trail. Uh, I also had this attitude where I was like, okay, it's a short trail. It took us six weeks um, to the day and we weren't really rushing. Like we had some nice um, time off in certain towns and took an okay amount of zero days. Um, I know some people were doing that trail on a serious time limit. Um, So we could do like long days, but then we could also hang out in a cool spot. And um, I also just really took on this outlook that I would skimp on food Um, So I spent a little more on nicer food when I could um, like at kind of more like organic whole food bars and stuff. Cause that's what I eat primarily through the day is my main source. And I also got really sick at the beginning um, just from eating really horrible food and gas station junk. And um, I had a bunch of digestive issues that also almost took me off trail. Like I was just like in tears for days 
And um, then I kind of committed more once we got to Flagstaff. I was like, okay, I'm going to REI. I'm going to Whole Foods. And when I'm in town, I'm going to buy like probiotic drinks and, you know, fresh vegetables and food. Um, And because it was a shorter trail, I had a little bit more movement with my budget than a longer trail, I think. Um, But you can definitely do it on the cheap, especially if you're buying that gas station food, like Twinkies and uh, donuts. It's crazy when you see it. Again, I watch all these videos, get these YouTube holes, and you see them, and it's like they've got like Funyuns, and they're squishing them up as into like the tiniest amount. I'm like, Funyuns aren't good, but then like six bags compacted, so they, and I just think that's like these guys are eat like you know ramen and Funyuns and you know Snickers. Uh, I think, oh god, like if I did that for one day, I'd feel like crap. But they're gonna do that for like sixty days, so. I'm more with you. I've been like, we bought a dehydrator so I can dehydrate all the vegetables and stuff. Cause yeah, like having nice food is, is, is totally worth it. Yeah. And I took a stove too, which I normally don't have a stove. Um, and then, um, actually a brand Heather's choice sent me, um, some meals, which was really great, um, to try out while I was on trail. And, you know, they use like whole food kind of, they had like a vegan, African peanut stew that he really liked that, you know, is all like fresh ingredients, dehydrated. So I think having a stove really changed the game for me with food where you're normally, if you're cold soaking, you're reserved to only things that can actually rehydrate properly. So yeah, there was a few like weight things that I threw out the window on this trail and was like, whatever, I'm going for it. (laughs) So that added some luxury. Uh, Yeah, definitely. It sounds like a few more luxuries. This has been great, Ali. It's uh, uh, great to, to reconnect and hear about this. Uh, it's funny, hearing you talk about it, I really want to do the Arizona Trail. And now I'm like, maybe I'll go back to Europe and have have an easier trip because it sounds like it's it, it was a challenging, a challenging trail and not kind of, um, you know, it seemed like this mythical, beautiful trail. You're kind of in the warmth and it's not too bad, but it, it sounded sounded more challenging than, you know, kind of kind of what I thought it might be. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people, too, that I know have hiked it, had the same sentiment where it was, you know, quite challenging at times, but also very uplifting and uh, like a really kind of soul-filling experience. And we also, my partner and I did a fundraiser, too, um, for a humanitarian aid organization, uh, No More Deaths or No Mas Muertes, that exists on the border near Tucson, and um, they give aid to migrants crossing and um, try and push for safe policy change and things like that. So that was also like kind of a bonus to be able to um, connect with that group at the end and donate because there's just such a contrast when you're hiking. We actually met quite a few people along the way that um, had like really discriminatory uh, perspectives on the current state of the border. And it was really difficult to, you know, come up to a trailhead and someone's offering you water and you think you're going to have this nice conversation. And then it's really just like an uncomfortable, horrible time. And you're actively trying to change um, the landscape there. And you're dealing with people that um, just fully support the brutality that goes on. So being able to reach our fundraising goal and thank you for your donation that you were a part of reach our fundraising goal and then connect with the group after um, we were also encouraging people to send shoes, um, their old uh, trail runners, to the organization that they donate to folks on the Mexican side. Um, and yeah, that was really nice at the end. Um, 
to have that kind of like help be the cumulative thing when we finished. And yeah, the trail is really special. Uh, yeah, it definitely gives you kind of like a little grit <laughs> to your hiking and um, can be hard. But once you push through those challenges, it, it's really satisfying. Uh, and and on that fundraiser, I think it was so cool when you you know got an email. I thought this is really cool because like a lot of these fundraisers, the person doing it's like, oh, I'm gonna go hike somewhere and you know I'll get a free trip to the Great Wall of China or something. And it's like it's not really it's kind of fundraising, but it's kind of just like you're giving the person a trip. But with you guys, the money was going directly to this organization where you were doing you know your through hike. Uh, and for me, it's like, it was a really kind of, uh, I could see why it was, it was meaningful for you because you were kind of in that area. You were seeing what, you know, people, you know, trying to cross the border were dealing with. So I thought it was just a wonderful, uh, a wonderful like approach. You're doing something meaningful for you. And in the end, you're able to help, you know, hundreds or thousands of people who are, you know, trying to flee persecution or, you know, just, you know, terrible, terrible places and just, just trying to build a better life for them and their families. So uh, I, I thought that was really cool. And congratulations uh, on doing that because, you know, a lot of people just go and, you know, do a hike and they never think about it. But you guys obviously put some thought into, you know, adding some meaning meaning to that. Yeah, um, actually, that that's interesting because I kind of started um, adding a fundraiser every time that I do a long distance hike. And um, the impetus behind it was like, you know, if people can have a GoFundMe for something they just want to do in life, sure, surely, surely we can, you know, raise some money to offset um, the barriers to access that, you know, we're, we're participating in. And that started on the PCT with my friend, um, Christina, whose trail name is Townie. And she was my roommate in Banff for a while too, but we set off on the PCT together and, you know, we were just had a lot of like guilt and uncomfortable feelings about, being able to just get up and go and do something like that. And then especially with the contrast of how valuable being outside is to us and our well-being, um, we ended up fundraising for um, the Outward Bound Women of Courage program, which gives leadership and outdoor wilderness therapy training to women who are victims of violence or recovering from addiction um, with a priority to Indigenous women or women of color. And that was actually really amazing and we were able to send to send a bunch of women to the program and then because they have such a large fundraising platform they actually had women that um directly received uh scholarship money from us write us letters about their experience participating in the program so that was really cool because we were just trying to like offset the barriers to access that people have and then after that we decided just anytime doing a trail to find a cause that is relevant to that and use the momentum to help others uh you know that sounds incredible uh, i'm gonna get the uh the links to those two organizations the second one especially sounds really interesting and really powerful uh, and i think like hey if there's one message you take out of this this podcast it's try to incorporate you know help others while doing something that makes you feel real good like that's something that uh, is not out there a lot. I think that's a really powerful message. Uh, before we go, uh, you mentioned uh, before we start recording uh, this summer, you're doing it. You're doing the uh, Great Divide Trail, uh, and so, and so, how do you think this is going to compare to other trails you've done? One thing is that I've hiked a lot of it. It's in my backyard, and I've hiked a lot of the sections. And then also working on the Banff National Park Trail crew. For the past few summers, I've actually been able to maintain it. So I do know the ins and outs pretty well. So I'm excited. Um, and I've had some 
friends already offer to, you know, pick us up and drop food and share their space in their homes and meet us at the end. And um, I think that that's going to be really exciting to kind of link it all together because um, I've always done those sections on my weekends or quick trips here and there. So, um, and also to share that with my partner who's American um, and we've been through hiking together. That's how we met. So um, I'm excited to show him all of my backyard in one go. He's hiked a section of it with me already last summer, but yeah, it'll be nice to do that together. Uh, Cause I really think that all together, all the different sections really show off the Rockies and yeah, it'll be exciting. I'm a little scared about the grizzly bears in the super remote areas, but we'll get there when, <laughs> when we get there. Yeah, I'm just hoping you get no, no smoke and a beautiful autumn. Cause that seems to be two of the things that have really, you know, this, you know, the rapid changing of, of temperature and, and rainfall and heat, you know, for those of us in the Rockies, we're seeing a ton of smoke every summer because the forests are burning because they're not designed to be this hot. So let's hope there's a bunch of rain, but not so much. It's raining every day and you guys could have a wonderful, uh, a, a wonderful through hike because it is, you know, a stunning part of the world as, as you know, probably more than better than anybody. Uh, well, Ali, it was great having you on today. Uh, once again, I'll put some links in the show notes if you want to check out anything. Uh, and yeah, thank you. Uh, I got a nice education today on a holiday Monday, which was uh, really appreciated. Cool. Thanks for your time, Richard. Great to chat again. And with that, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures on the 10 Adventures podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.